0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see you here. Um, I taught high school for about five years and one of the most interesting parts about teaching high school is getting to meet all of the parents. Um, parents and teachers are usually best friends in every situation. There's never any conflicts or or anything like that. And and you have this thing called a parent-teacher conference. And again, usually it's a time where parents come to just praise you. And no, so there's usually a conflict, right? Something happened and something needs to be worked out and... Um, You know, parents sometimes, you know, want to defend their kids, and so parents and teachers kind of have sometimes a contentious relationship. Um, And so I certainly had my fair share of those. Um, But on the other hand, you get to meet a lot of amazing parents. Um, You get to meet a lot of of parents who you're like, that's a good idea. They did that really well. Um, I've always joked, I'm not a parent myself yet, but I've always joked that teaching seems to be like a really good training ground. You get to see all the different styles and options you're like, uh, not so much. Uh, yeah, let's do this over there. Um, I've got a Rolodex of people I can call and be like, how did you make your son turn out like that? <laughs> Give me those instructions. Um, and I had a mom one year who turned out to be one of my favorites. I had a student named Charlton. And Charlton um, was a really charismatic, personable kid, um, Pretty popular, love to interact with teachers and kind of be goofy and make class fun and kind of make every day exciting and and something to look forward to. And sometimes when you have a student like that, you know, the line of seriousness and then goofiness gets blurred. And sometimes you might give the like break signal and they might just keep accelerating over that line. And and so you've got to work that out with them. Well, I met Charlton's mom early on in the year. And she was at an open house, which is a different kind of anxiety attack for a teacher than a parent teacher conference. It was at an open house, and she came up to me and she's like, Hey, can I speak to you over here on the side? And I'm like, I don't know what I did, but what are my go to excuses? And she said, Look, I know my son. And I was like, Okay, thank you. She said, I know what he does at school, I know how he's acted in the past, I know how he's gonna act this year. And I want you to know that I'm on your side. This is the best news you can hear as a teacher, right? Like, yes, I have an ally here. And she was like, he loves a joke. He loves to be a class count, He thinks he's funny. And if there's ever at any point any thought in your mind that he needs to maybe be put in his, his place a little bit, I want you to call me up. I don't work during the day. And I will come and sit in class the next day. And I'll show him who's funny. And who can be a clown? And who can be distracting? And I was just like, "Yes, this is amazing. This is awesome. This is what we need in our lives." And for some reason, it didn't come up between Charlton and I. I'm sure he was made aware of this threat. And a few weeks later into the school year, you know, he kind of kept accelerating after I asked him to break a little bit. And I was like, "Charlton, I mean, if you keep doing this, I'm going to have to call your mom this afternoon." And my goodness, you have never seen a child switch behavior so fast. Uh, I mean, just complete turnabout, 180 degrees. Um, I I mentioned Charlton's mom and the way that she was able to support uh, both me and kind of control her son, because I I think that a wise mother is actually a pretty good example of what we'll be talking about this morning. We're in a series called Christianese, Um, what Christians say, and, and the idea behind it is to take some really important, big, sacred words that we have in our faith and to kind of explore them and dig into them and, and kind of see if maybe there are ways that they can be misunderstood or, or distorted or misused. And so we've looked at the word holy and holiness. We've looked at the word sin last week. And today I want to look at the word sovereign. And I think that a wise mother ruling over her child is pretty similar, actually, to what the Scriptures are getting at when they say that God is Sovereign. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Psalm 99. We're going to go two places this morning, but we'll start in, I'm sorry, 93. We'll start in Psalm 93. The question before us is what do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Some of our famous hymns have this this title attributed to the Lord. If you were to search in your English Bibles, the ESVs around you right here that many of us have that I'm preaching out of, for the word sovereign, you're going to find it only three times in the Bible. Um, All in the New Testament, in Acts 4, they're all in part of a title, so sovereign Lord. 1 Timothy 6, the only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, and Revelation 6, O sovereign Lord. There, There, in fact, is not a Greek word that means the English sovereign. Um, The different Greek words used in these three places all just kind of mean the generic ruler or master or lord. Um, We get this idea that God is sovereign. We say this, we celebrate this, God's sovereignty, because of just a large thematic presence that we have in the scriptures. Because the scriptures over and over and over again will praise God's power and his rule and his control. And they'll compare God to a king a wise and a loving king. This is one of the um, most common metaphors throughout the scriptures. Um, So let's see uh, this in play here in Psalm 93. It reads like this, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, and you are everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. Or maybe Houston version, the flash floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods are lifted up roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Here you get to see some of this praise in action. The Lord reigns. The Lord sits on a throne over all of creation, and it's set in place. The Lord's power is is beyond imagination. In the ancient world, when you, you see floods and seas mentioned, this is often a, a metaphor for chaos, for destruction, and, and we are pretty good at understanding that metaphor. I mean, just this week, some of us had some anxiety, I certainly did, with the flash floods that, that came about, and... And if not some of us in this room, many of us know someone who had some damage because of these floods. Imagine imagine just for a second being in the ancient world and not having the weather channel to inform you of what the uh, weather pattern is, what the radar is looking like. I mean, Friday night, I'm supposed to go to Houston Baptist University to proctor one of my finals. I don't know why uh, Friday night is a great time to schedule a final, but... They gave it to their favorite teacher, and I'm sitting there watching. When's the rain coming? I don't want to get stuck up there. Imagine in the ancient world, you have none of this. It just shows up. I mean, you can imagine the the fear and the kind of chaos that it can personify. And mightier than that, the psalm says, more powerful than that is the Lord, the God who reigns. You find this theme throughout Scripture. To say that God is sovereign is to say something about his relationship to his creation. To say God is sovereign, to say something about God's reign, God's rule over creation. Lots of places in the Bible emphasize God's power and rule over creation. In fact, to speak of God as a king in this ruling language, sovereignty language, this kingly language, is one of, if not the most common metaphor for God in the scriptures. Other metaphors are used. God's often seen as our father, we've read earlier, God is my shepherd. Other metaphors are used throughout the scriptures, but king is a big one. Interestingly enough, and maybe appropriate because of the day, God is seen in the scriptures also as a mother. Maternal metaphors are used for God. Um, Some of my favorite ones are actually these maternal metaphors. God at one point is described as a mother bird sheltering her children under her wings. There is a mother bear protecting her cubs from attack. Isaiah uses this, this metaphor of a human mother and her love and compassion to care for a child to describe God's love and care and compassion for his people multiple times. And Isaiah 42, For a long time I, God speaking, have kept silent. I've been quiet. I've held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, I pant. It's just like that pain that a woman has giving birth. So it is me watching my people being Destroyed and yet waiting for new creation, waiting to birth them again into a new people. In Psalm forty nine, fifteen, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Even so I God will not forget you. What a beautiful what a beautiful saying. As a mother, Isaiah sixty six comforts her child, so will I God comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. But when we say God is sovereign, we're talking about God's rule over creation. And, and sovereign is a big word. It's a big word. It can take on lots of different meanings. If you were to ask five different people to define the word sovereign, you'd probably see similar threads in each of the answers, but you'd find different answers. And particularly if you said, what does it mean to say that God is sovereign? You'd see people interpret that statement in different ways. Um, there's a scholar um, who says this? The bigger the word, the more easily alien elements are able to hide in it. Right? I mean, the more the more big a word is, the more broad it is. the The easier it is for it to be distorted, for other ideas to kind of creep in that aren't intended to be there. So here is how, for the last 500 years or more in the Western world, the idea that God is sovereign has been explained. Here's here's how it's been taught. Um, it's it's. An idea that God is in complete control of everything that happens in the universe. We might call this a meticulous control. Or we might say God is divinely micromanaging his creation. It's an idea that every thought and every action and every event that has ever taken place and will ever take place was predetermined by God was part of God's will for creation, was part of God's plan for creation. Nothing happens outside of God's will. To say that God is sovereign is to say that at every second, in every situation, no matter what is happening, He is the one controlling it. He is the one in charge. He is the one actively making this happen. Now, I'm going to suggest this morning that the Scripture's don't quite line up with this idea. And they they give us maybe a different understanding of what it means to say that God is is sovereign, one that is perhaps not a a view of God as meticulously controlling every little thing that happens in our world. Um, I want to point out three questions that come up, I think, naturally when you have this view of God as sovereign. And, And I would read some quotes to you from theologians. I don't want to make the sermon too long, but you will have theologians who will say something like this. There's not one molecule in the universe that's acting outside of God's will. I mean, to the subatomic level, God is in complete and total and utter control over everything. Now, a couple questions. The first is, the scriptures don't seem to support this. Just the narrative of the Bible. I mean, just a a surface level reading. You don't have to have a degree to read the scriptures and, and to think that Well, it sure does seem that people do things God doesn't want them to do. It seems like a big part of the story seems to happen again and again and again. It seems like he punishes them to try to get them to do what he wants them to do. I think the narrative of Scripture is hard to understand faithfully with this idea of sovereignty. I think you also get into problems when it comes to a fancy word called theodicy, which is basically just a theology of evil. This gets very pastoral and personal very quickly. For someone who's had a tragedy happen in their life, what would that mean for them to then think that it was God who was in control of that tragedy? It was God who had planned down to every little detail what was going to go wrong in that life, in that child's life. I know dozens of people, who aren't Christian or are kind of on the line because of this personal challenge to their faith, if God is in control this much, then why would this happen? And if this happens, then can we really say honestly that God is good? Does the word not lose all meaning at that that point? If God is in control over every little thing in our world, including all of the evil things that happen, then is not God morally ambiguous at best? If not morally troubling? There's a theologian who said post-Holocaust, whenever we're talking about evil and the theology of evil, whatever we say, we should be willing to say it in front of and to a survivor of the Holocaust. Because it's easy to theorize about evil and tragedy, Right? But we've got to remember, it's personal. It's real. It hits people that you know and that you love. And if it hasn't hit you yet, it probably will one day. This idea of sovereignty, I think, brings a lot of questions when it comes to whether God is He the author of sin and evil. And then the third one is, um, I call this will anxiety. So, so Christians naturally want to do the will of God. We want to know what God wants us to do in our life, and we want to follow that will. And one of the biggest issues in the Christian life people come into my office to talk about it is what is God's will for me in this situation? Should I take this career? Should I send my kids to this school? What is the will here? And the assumption is God has a blueprint. It's all mapped out. And I don't want to be the one who makes the mistake and misses out on God's best for me because I don't follow this blueprint. It's not too unlike actually this like romantic idea for every soul, there is this magical one out there, right? That you're supposed to find and marry and love. If, I mean, just think about, I don't know if you ever played this out in your mind. If this is true, if all of us have this one person out there, all it would take to completely mess things up for all of us is one person in history to pick the wrong person. And then it's just a domino effect, and we're all married to the wrong people. <laughs> This is the blueprint idea, right? Everything is laid out meticulously. There's this this very detailed plan that we are supposed to follow. So I want to go through these three ideas together um, this morning. The first is the narrative of Scripture. Um, Throughout the Bible, a constant theme of the Bible is that God's people are constantly going against His will. God desires one thing, and His people and those who are not His people do the opposite. They, They thwart His desires. God has desires for the future because of the past mistakes that have happened in his creation. God gets angry and mad because things happen. God gets surprised and sad because things happen. It doesn't seem as if everything that happens in Scripture is some part of some eternal, mysterious blueprint plan that God has. It seems like the pattern you find in Scripture over and over again is, is threefold. God acts God's always the initiator. He creates, and then we are. Or he reveals himself to us, and then we put our faith in him. God, so God acts, number one. Then humans respond, react. And then three, God responds. So in the Ten Commandments, God reveals some laws for the Israelites to follow. And then they have an action. They have a, a choice in front of them. And when they choose to disobey the Ten Commandments, God is going to react in a certain way, try to get things back on path. And if they obey, he's going to react in a certain way to bless them and to encourage that obedience. It seems pretty clearly in the Scriptures God's will does not always occur. We're taught by Jesus himself to pray for God's will to happen on earth as it is in heaven. The assumption here underlying this is that it's not currently happening. That there are pockets and places throughout the world where God's will is not being expressed. That God doesn't want doesn't want evil things to happen at schools involving school children. That this is not part of his plan. This is something deviating from his plan. That God doesn't want these tragic diseases ravaging the bodies of our loved ones. This is not part of the plan. This is a deviation from the plan. It's hard to really make sense of the the overall narrative of Scripture without understanding that whatever we mean by God's sovereignty, we don't mean that he rules so tightly that human beings have no freedom. God's sovereignty does not cancel out human freedom, and God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out human responsibility, It wouldn't make much sense for God to get upset at people for doing things that he's made them do, right? That they were always going to do, that had always been written in this eternal blueprint for them to do. Whatever the sovereignty is, it it still involves some freedom, the ability to act. It doesn't take away freedom. It doesn't take away moral responsibility. God's sovereignty in the scripture seems to, in a large way, be a description of future events. It's often something we praise God for or trust God for as we're hoping for a future where God will act and do something to bring creation into further accordance with his will. We, we could say it like this. Um, God's will in the scriptures is something that's his by right. So God is God and we are not God. This is Theology 101. Creator, creation, which means God is free to do whatever he'd like to do. He does not need your approval. He does not need my approval. He can do whatever he'd like to do, and there's no appeals court that we can take him to. Like, I'm sorry, this violates section 16C of Code A. He's free to act in whatever way he's, he, he desires to, but he's also free to, he's free to express his freedom in whatever way he'd like to. So, so while God has this ultimate power, it's his by right, it seems that in creation, God creates some space, and then even through that space, gives human beings. They only have freedom because God gives them freedom. Human's freedom isn't an absence of God's activity. It's really a result of God's activity. Uh, but gives humans freedom, the ability to choose. Gives creation the ability to respond in a free manner. Theologians would hypothesize this because God wants love, and love seems to require real relationships, and real relationships seem to require real loyalty, which requires real choice, the abilities they know or yes. But again, it's always God's right. He is the creator, the ruler. He does sit on the throne. He can do whatever he wants. But we might say, well, his will is always his right. It's not always by fact. So God is sovereign by right, but maybe not sovereign in actuality at every place and every time in the universe right now. This is something we can ascertain easily from our own experiences. Um, the, the president of the United States or the prime minister of another country or whatever government ruler we'll, we'll compare to, right? They might have a certain rule and a right to rule, and it's theirs, and it's their right to enforce it, and yet there might be places in their country where it's not happening. It doesn't mean that they don't have that right. It just means this needs to be transformed for their, their rule to further be taken place. As a teacher, now as a professor, there are times in my classroom where I don't give up the power. I always retain the power. At any point, I could put a stop to what's happening. But sometimes I will say, let's watch you go. I'm going to give you some freedom here. Let's see where this discussion leads. Or if people are getting distracted, I'm going to say, let's see if you can focus yourselves. Let's see if you can kind of get to the point where we are like, okay guys, quiet. Fresh Skinner, will you get us back on track here? It's not that I gave up or didn't have the power, right? It's that I exercised that power in a certain way. The narrative of the scripture seems to suggest this is how God's sovereignty is. And then when we ask the question about evil and tragedy and about finding God's will for our lives, I think both of these are answered by looking at another very important text this morning. So if you will, flip with me to John chapter 9. It just so happens as well that John 9 is one of the most important texts people use to support the idea that God's sovereignty is meticulous, is ultra-controlling, that even bad things in life happen because God wants them to happen for his own mysterious reasons. John nine verses one through three. As he passed by he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This was a common belief in the ancient world that if something had ailed you, you had some deformity, some illness like this, some disability, that that it was traceable to perhaps a sin of yours or a sin of your parents. Now, I'm not sure what they would have really thought about someone born blind, like if he's in the womb doing something wrong. Um, but this is the question they asked Jesus. And, and Jesus responds like this in verse 3. And this is where the debate happens. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, in the ESV that we're reading from, um, the important clause here comes after Jesus' initial answer. He says, "It's not the man's sin, and it's not the parent's sin. You're wrong. This is the wrong, wrong question you're asking." And it's in this phrase that comes right after that, "But that the works of God might be displayed in him." Now, in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, it's a little ambiguous the way the, the words are used and constructed here. And so you have to add a couple words to really make it make sense in an English sentence. And what a lot of English translations have done, like the NIV, the NASB, is they put in this phrase, the NSRV, they put in this phrase, he was born so that God's works can be done, or so that the work of God can be manifest or displayed. And here's, here's the golden text. People say, no, look, even something bad, even something that that we would think, why would God possibly do this? God had made this man born blind to set this up for 20 years later, 25 years later when Jesus meets him and is able to to heal him. Now, the phrase that that the ESV translates a little bit differently, I think a little fairer for us, is is called a, a, a henna construction. Say henna with me. Henna, not the tattoo, it's a Greek word. Um, if you're in Greek class 101, you're gonna learn that henna almost always means so that or in order that. Kind of a purpose clause. But then when you go to Greek class two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you start to learn that what they taught you, right, has lots of exceptions. And there's lots of contextual clues about whether it really means this at this point or really means this at that point. It's missing certain words here, and a lot of scholars, and, and I agree with them, suggest that henna here is not in any way a purpose clause, so that. Jesus is not answering the, the, the question that was given to him. He's not saying, why did this happen? Not the guy, not the man, because of God. He's completely ignoring the question. He's saying, you have the wrong assumptions completely. And so henna here can be, and I think most accurately here, is a command clause, and watch how differently it reads. If you, if, you, if you read it this way, it changes into this. Neither this man sin nor his parents, but let the works of God be revealed in him. Neither this man sin nor his parents, but the works of God should or must be revealed in him. Jesus throws away their question and says, look, this is nonsense. I want to do what God wants me to do here, which is to bring life. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is presented as the ultimate representation of who God is, what his desires are, what his will is, what his character is like. And in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't make people blind so that he can then later heal them. No, he meets someone blind and he heals them. He meets someone with some kind of disability or or someone who's oppressed and he, he sets them free. He's come to set the captives free. He's come to heal the blind. Theologically, if we think about it, it doesn't make sense here for Jesus to be undoing something that God the Father has done to try to set him up here. So Christians believe in a concept called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three three persons, one God. It's a little confusing, it's mysterious, and it's okay, it's supposed to be mysterious. But one of the basic tenets is that God the Father and Jesus are of one being. There's no difference between them in character and will and nature. And so why would you have God working in one direction, God the Father, and Jesus working in the other direction? Like if the whole arc of the scriptures is from creation to this fall to then this new creation, redemption, why in the middle of the fall is God kind of hitting things backwards again? Why are they working at cross purposes here in the Gospels? I mean, just to, just to give him examples to kind of show off his power, kind of get his message across. Or instead, it's what Jesus says, what, what's really going on. No, I'm here to do the works of God. The work of God is not to, to bring death, to bring blindness, to bring disease or calamity. The work of God is to bring life. And this is what I'm here for. This is what I am doing. David Bentley Hart, a theologian, says, says this. It's from Christ that... If it is from Christ, we are to learn how God himself relates to sin and to suffering and evil and death. It would seem that he provides us with little evidence of anything other than a regal, relentless, and miraculous enmity. Sin he forgives, suffering he heals, evil he casts out, and death he conquers. And absolutely nowhere, Hart says, does Christ act as if any of these things are part of some mysterious eternal plan of God. Instead of a blueprint worldview, Jesus has a warfare worldview. In the Gospels, Jesus shows up and he says, things are not going according to God's will, but I'm bringing God's will. The kingdom of God is arriving in me through my actions. And then what are those actions? Forgiving sin, casting out demons, healing people who need to be healed, conquering death. Perhaps sovereignty is not about Unilateral control or divine micromanagement, or God dictating every thought and action and event of history. Perhaps God's sovereignty is just as much about his wisdom as it is about his power. Think about this. I think this is one of the attributes of God that some evangelicals don't dwell on, and then we lean on other attributes too heavily. God is infinitely wise. He's smart. He knows how to act in order to accomplish his purposes. We might use an analogy. God's like a 4D chess player, and we're like learning checkers. He knows all the ins and outs of every possible move. There's no possible situation in which he gets defeated here. Now, we imagine God perhaps needing complete control of everything to accomplish his purposes, Because if we don't have complete control of everything, we can't guarantee that our purposes are accomplished. But what if that's the case because we lack a certain amount of wisdom? We lack the ability to think through every possible option and then come up with the best plan for the possibility of every possible option. And so no matter what happens in front of us, from eternity we already have the exact plan to accomplish our will through. I think God's wisdom helps us balance out this idea of power and control when we talk about God's sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign is not to say when we come to a text that says God has used evil for good that we focus on the fact that he used evil. He must have put it there. It must have been part of his thing. It's instead to focus on the fact of what he did with it. It showed up and then look at what he did with it. You played that chess move and then God still said Checkmate. And then they played that chess move, and he still said, checkmate. And as a chess player, God doesn't need to control which moves you make, because guess what? From eternity, he's considered every possible move you could ever possibly make and knows the exact best way to respond in order to have his will accomplished. Mothers are able to tap into this often. Mothers rely on wisdom as much as they rely on control and pure power. Uh, When I was in college, I wanted to get a tattoo. I was 18 years old, and so I was at the prime of my decision-making abilities. (laughs) And my parents, who are here, they said, you can get inked, but if you get inked, you're going to pay for your very expensive private education. And I said, okay, I guess I won't do this. And I waited, and after I graduated, I said, hey, long conversation ago, y'all told me that you're going to take away some some assistance if I had gotten a tattoo, and so I want to know what what you, your thoughts are now. And they're like, well, you, you're not paying for anything. You can do what you want. And I can remember at the time kind of being like, well, I, I kind of want to know a little bit more. Like, my brother at the time was really little, like, are you going to want me to hide it in front of him, like around family functions? Like, what, what really are going to be your thoughts about it? I kind of matured as a person a little bit, hopefully. And they're like, no, for four years you've thought about it, it's, it's your decision. It's your body. We trust you. And so I got my first little tattoo here. Now, they didn't anticipate that it would lead to this <laughs> ink addiction that just went out of control My sister, at one point, apparently wanted to get a belly button ring, which, look, you don't need wisdom to understand. I don't know. People here might have belly button rings. (laughs) That's a very bad thing to say from stage. Could be a great decision. But my mom's response to my sister was You're totally allowed to do that as long as I can do it too. We can go together. (laughs) Wisdom. Knowing the personality knowing how to persuade, knowing the character of the person, not having to exercise complete unilateral control. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he's in control, and it is to say that he is wise. It is to say that God's working towards a goal in which he cannot be stopped, no matter the opponent, no matter the challenge, no matter our mistakes or the mistakes of others. And then when it comes to God's will for us in our lives, I think it, it helps us out here. If we don't focus and get hyper-anxious about this blueprint will perhaps God has for every small decision in our lives, we're freed up to see the very clear will that God has for our lives. So instead of maybe asking the question of what career should I go into, banking or education, what's God's will for me? We could say this, I know what God's will for you is, and it doesn't change whether you go into banking or into education. God's will for you is twofold. It's one, always going to be for you to become more like Christ be conformed into his image. To grow in your relationship to the Father, to where you are as close, or getting closer to the Father as Jesus was so intimately related to the Father. To grow in your ability to love others as yourself, the way that Jesus loved others as yourself. You're not going to pick a career in which that gets put off the table. It's always God's will for you in every situation. And God's will for you is going to be to then go and, and spread the good news. Be a missionary, even, even in your family and friends and community. If you go to that college or that college, if you send your kids to that school or to that school, no matter where you go, it's going to be one of your jobs. God's clear will for your life is to go and embody the gospel, to go and, and share what God's doing in your life and what God can do in the lives of, of other people. And then when it, when it comes to why we praise and trust God because of his sovereignty, we were able to say in an age of anxiety that we truly do know that our God reigns, that out of every situation, good or bad, confusing or clear, the works of God will be made manifest because of Jesus' kingdom he has inaugurated, his spirit still at work, that he will work all things out The good of those who love him. So there's a very clear trajectory of history, and it's towards life and resurrection and peace, shalom, wholeness. And there's nothing that any human or angel or demon could ever do to throw God off of that path, to make us wonder if he's still able to get there. He's sovereign. Not only is he powerful, but he's wise. He works out of his character. He can't work in any other way. His character is good, and so this good God will work in good ways for our good. We can repeat faithfully with the childlike wonder, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's the one who reigns. We come back to this, this, this song we learned as children. He's got the whole world in his hands. And we're able to, to appreciate that with perhaps a different perspective. But no less real of perspective. And so in a minute, we'll come to the table. We do this every week at Sweetwater Christian Church. To participate in communion, or the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And this is one of these patterns where we get to now react. We get to respond. God's spoken to us. God's invited us to worship. And in a minute, we'll get to come and declare our loyalty. We'll get to come and declare our love, come and declare our trust in the reign of God in Christ.